Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, February 23rd, 2011. Not even sure what where to go with today's program. <laughs> Looking at the lineup and just shaking my head. Somebody on Facebook uh, sent me a message yesterday and said, you know, when I first started listening to your show, it was kind of silly, and now it's just getting worse and worse. And yeah, it is. It's really getting worse. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Why? Because it matters. That's right. It's it's not that M-I-C-K-E-Y. Why? Because, well, because we love you. Yeah, no, it's, well, I do love you, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. And the truth is, is what you're being told, and what many people are being told about Christianity and about God, they, it cannot be substantiated from the clear teachings of the Bible. Not at all. People are literally winging it, making up their own stuff, and uh, calling it uh, God's will, or what God has planned for you, or whatever. And as a result of all of this, we, 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 it's, uh, it's a spiritual wild west out there, and in in all places, the worst place is in many places that call themselves Christian churches. Truth matters. Yeah, Jesus said, "Those who worship Him will worship Him in spirit and in truth." Yeah. So, in other words, you don't get to make it up. And uh, the whole point of having a, a revelation from God is that pastors are supposed are supposed to preach it. They're supposed to actually, you know, open the book and tell you what it really says and what the Holy Spirit intended to convey. And, and yeah, people aren't doing that anymore. And uh, it, it's just, it's gotten worse. The next generation of pastors coming up to the ranks are going to be uh, uh, a train wreck, already worse than the current train wreck that we're experiencing. And we chronicle, we chronicle that all here on the program. And, uh, and tr- in counterbalance, it was sound biblical doctrine and point you back to the central message of the Scripture, that's Christ and Him crucified for your sins. In other words, the Bible's really not about you, it's about Christ and what He's done for you. You get caught up in that story as you're brought to repentance uh, repentance and sorrow for your sinfulness and, the, and the, the wretched deeds that you've committed against God in rebelling against Him by not obeying His commands found in the Ten Commandments. 
and uh, and then hearing the good news that Christ Jesus died for those sins and uh, is offering you full and complete pardon. And you're thinking, well, I, I heard that once when I made a decision for Jesus. Yeah, the problem is you need to hear that every day. Jesus is the object of our faith because he's the one true God in human flesh. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Not you, not me, not somebody else, not somebody's bizarre ideas, but Christ is. He is all and in all. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Apart from him, there is no God. And so we are to worship and proclaim and hear from the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in particular, we're supposed to exalt Christ and tell the story of Jesus. And uh, that means sound doctrine. It means it, it means doing the hard work uh, of you know actually cracking open the Scriptures and spending time understanding what is going on in those texts. And uh, one of the things I strongly recommend, if you're not in the habit of uh, of reading the scriptures, uh, I strongly recommend that you get into the habit of it. But the other thing is, is that I strongly recommend that you get in the habit of reading large segments of the scripture in one setting. I, I think one of the problems that we have in the church today is is that people are ripping and tearing all these tiny little verses out of context. And uh, and when you really understand uh, how these texts were written and how they came to us, they were never intended to be read chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, the biblical authors wrote letters. The letters are meant to be read as letters. Uh, they wrote uh, biographies of Jesus. Those are meant to be read. In fact, uh, the average gospel, uh, if, you read, if you were to sit down and try to read uh, Matthew or Luke or John, you can get it done in about an hour, hour, 15 minutes. And I here's the deal. I think that's how it was meant to be read. And I, I get nervous uh, about uh, pastors who, you know, who take a verse here and take a verse there. And the reason why I get nervous about it is because usually they, uh, they're ripping stuff out of context and creating a pretext for their bizarre ideas. And uh, I think one of the simplest ways to defend yourself and your family and your friends against a lot of these tin penny, uh, $3 phony uh, plastic banana uh, self-help entertainers who are posing as pastors is to actually become very conversant with the biblical text. And the way you do that is you read the stories. I mean, seriously, I mean, when was the last time you read a good novel? I'm, I'm, you know, I, for, when I try to take a little bit of downtime, I do a couple of things when I take downtime. And uh, one of them is, is that I don't read theology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, you know, reading a lot of books about fascism, uh, irrational philosophy, re- oh man, I, I've been reading Heidegger, I've been, you know, I, horrible, just horrible, awful stuff. And um and so to to rest and refresh you know I'll I'll read scripture but I won't read a theological book and uh, the other thing I've been doing is I've been working my way through a Sherlock Holmes novel just perfectly wonderful and entertaining as all get out I I mean <laughs> just good stuff but here's the deal I mean when you read a Sherlock Holmes novel. I mean, the Sher- a Sherlock Holmes novel was not intended, you know, written in such a way that it was intended for you to, to you know, to go to Sherlock Holmes chapter three, 
section uh, 14 verse 1 and you know just take a snippet out of there and you know you if this is how you handled Sherlock Holmes you would never know what that novel's about and the same holds true for the scripture if you are in the habit of sitting down with a little devotional text you know like you know, in his steps, prayers and meditations to help you help lift your day or, you know, some bizarre little, I, that's not really a, you know, a thing, but you understand what I'm saying. And, you know, it has a, t- a verse or a half sentence, you know, there's your little devotional thought. And then after, and then following it are, you know, three, four paragraphs that are supposedly some kind of inspirational thought based upon that half verse. Y- you are going to know nothing, absolutely zero at the end of a year, at the end of 10 years, at the end of 15 years, about what the Bible's about. Because the Bible is not meant to be read that way. No. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. If you're doing that, I'm, I'm, I'm admonishing you to repent. Instead, what I strongly recommend doing, and um, you dads out there that are listening, you men that are out there listening, I know this is going to sound like I'm anti-woman. I'm not. I'm I. I am not an anti-woman person. I, I believe that men and women have different functions and roles. I believe in complementarianism. But the idea is this, is that, uh, hey, you guys out there, um, uh, especially if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, just tune out for a minute. Uh, but you Christian guys out there, you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You have been redeemed, and you have been forgiven of your sins, and you are set free from bondage to sin, death, and the devil. And now you are set free to love your wife and your children in an amazing way. And uh, and it's this is not a burden. This is this is an absolute privilege for you to be able to do this. But as you are the spiritual leader of your home, and uh, if you're not sitting down with your family and teaching them the scriptures and teaching them the major doctrines of, of, of the Bible via catechism or however you want to do that, um, um, that that's wrong. You know, this flat out. That if you're not doing that, you, you're, you're in sin and you need to repent. You are called to lead and guide your family. And I am absolutely convinced in, the, in this day and age, I, I know that you guys out there that are listening, you don't want your wife or your children to get caught up in all of this nonsense. But the reality is this, is that you are actually powerless to a point to prevent that. You are, you, you, the only thing you have at your disposal is God's Word, and God's Word is living and active. And so what I strongly recommend doing is sitting down with your family at a regular time daily. And you're thinking, what? Yes, 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 daily. Crack open the Bible and teach your children the biblical stories and teach them in context and, you know, work through the narrative text, especially if you have younger children. And you can weave in some of the theological texts like Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and things like that as they touch on, uh, as the, the major theological themes are touched on in the narrative so that they know the scriptures they know the doctrine. They know the theology that is revealed in God's Word. And by becoming so conversant in the truth and so conversant in what the Scriptures teach, I guarantee you that it, 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 that your children, when they hear something off and bizarre, they're going to go, that doesn't sound right. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, you know, I, I have teenage daughters— 
And uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, my teenage daughters, um, they know that I'm a sinner and they don't worship the ground that I walk on, (laughs) which is really a good thing. But um, as a result of it, I mean, I mean, my daughters have heard just sporadic episodes here and there of of fighting for the faith. They are not avid listeners to my own program. And that doesn't bother me because the, the, the most important time I spend with them is not having them listen to my radio program. But the most important time I spend with them is at the dinner table with God's word open. But uh, my uh, youngest daughter, who, you know, I don't know what happened. I mean, I, I think there's a disease in uh, among teenage girls, but uh, she has a, a, like a very bad case of this. Uh, you know, she's a, a young teenager going on about 35. I'm convinced that she thinks that she knows everything there is to know on the planet. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe what I really need to do is just buy her a car and give her a, an allowance and send her off into the world so that she can go solve all the world's problems because she already knows everything. <laughs> but man, is she precocious? Anyway, um, but uh, you know, she, when uh, what, what, you know, when I'm working on stuff, and you know, I've got audio playing, uh, you know, like I'm pre-listening to a sermon or whatever. Uh, many times, she can hear what's going on, and uh, and I mean, she'll she'll walk by my office and she'll go, Dad. Who is that guy? He obviously doesn't know what what God's words te- what it teaches. I mean, it's funny, you know, to hear a you know, a young teenage girl. Um, she gets it, and you know, the thing is, is that she hasn't studied theology. She hasn't studied Greek. She hasn't studied Hebrew. She has never set foot in a college course on apologetics, theology, doctrine, the confessions, or anything of the sort. Um, and yet, you know, as soon as she hears false doctrine, she immediately knows, oh, this guy does not know what he's doing. <laughs> and I'm so proud. But the, here's the deal is that, you know, I, I can't take the credit for it. But it. It's God's word that did the work. And that's the thing is, is that if we believe that we're really handling the word of God and that's what the scripture is, it's God's word. This is a living and active book. And it, 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 God, the Holy Spirit inspired it. It, he, it's his, his power that brings the whole thing to life and raises people from the dead spiritually, brings them to, it convicts them of their sins, points them to Christ and him crucified for our sins. And so, you know, I, you know, the, I'm telling you, telling you, telling you, you want to be in the text and you want to be teaching the stories and don't atomize it. And what I mean by that is don't read a verse to your child and then ask him, and what does this mean? And what is it? Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Tell him the stories. Read the stories. Read the stories. Read the stories. And when you sit down to study God's word, read the stories. Imagine that the chapter headings and the verses and the verse numbers don't exist. Yeah, I, I read the story so that you can start working your way through these things. And so it's a good practice. It's a very good way to read the scriptures to like if you're going to read like one of the Pauline epistles, sit down and read the whole thing and don't stop. Start it at Start at the beginning and go all the way through. You've now seen the forest. And then go back and 
pause along the way to kind of to, to, to take in the de- uh, you know a little bit more study into what's going on in the text you know by slowing it down and reading it for you know more for greater comprehension and and really let you know thinking and pondering and looking at what's being revealed there small small wise but as a habit make sure that you're reading the whole text and when you come away from a, 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 a you know a, a you know a section of scripture that you've been studying or reading when you come away from it if if you know like you got through a chapter three and then you know and then you know the next day you're going to come back to it you might want to reread it again keep the forest in mind I think we're missing the forest because of all these little verse trees I, I, and this is not how the Bible was meant to be read this is not how the Bible was read in years past uh, in in church history. Read the stories, read the narratives, read the letters as letters, and and don't chop it up into such tiny pieces that you can't see the bigger mosaic going on in the scriptures. And that, in fact, if you can think of the uh, of the Bible, I mean, we got sixty six books, we got forty something authors written over several thousand years. Okay, and the, the, a good way to view the Bible, it, you know. Ugh. It, yes, it's a library, and, and I understand that. But a good way to a, a good mental picture of it, the scripture. If we if you put each of the books together, it becomes a tile, or you know each of the sections of scripture becomes a tile, a tiny little tile that you can put on the ground. And when you're done, and you when you arrange them correctly, and you zoom back, you realize, oh, this is a mosaic picture of Jesus Christ. That's yeah, right. That's the idea. All of this points us to Christ. Jesus said the scriptures are about him. They testify about him. And if you're reading your life into this, oh, yeah, 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 you are in, in deep kimchi. Yeah, that's a formula for disaster. Anyway, so read the Bible and read sections of the Bible. Read the books as books. Read the narratives. Get the big picture and then go back and work through some of the smaller stuff but always make a point of of telling the story and and this is what and coming back to the guys here guys you get to be the ones doing this now i understand there's single moms who listen to this program and those in those situations uh you've got to step up okay that's that's the that you you fill that function uh until god changes things uh in in your life but tell the stories tell the stories and bring Christ into all, even the Old Testament stories. Bring Christ in. There's ways to do that. And in fact, I'm thinking about playing a lecture from a symposia not too long ago, talking about the Christological themes of First uh, and Second Kings, so you can kind of see how, you know how it is that you bring Christ into the overall narratives. Tell the stories. Tell the stories. Tell the stories. And then the idea then is is that the uh, the theological sections uh, in the epistles. They're the things that give us the doctrinal and theological interpretation of the narrative. So the two work together. The stories show us one, you know, they kind of show us the bigger picture of how this all plays out, and then uh, how, you know, God has acted in history, and the theological sections like Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and those epistles, they give us the theology to help us inter- that gives us the correct interpretation of those narrative historical stories, okay? So anyway, again, get into the text, read the text, and stop breaking it up into tiny little bits. That's not how God's Word is meant to be handled or understood. Anyway, all right, Uh, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, Well, uh, let's see here. 
I, I may not get to all of this, and uh, that wouldn't be a first for me. But uh, looking at what I've uh, prepared for the program today, uh, <laughs> yeah, yesterday um, was the first day of the 2011 Radicalis Conference uh, out there at uh, Saddleback Church, and uh, <sighs> yeah, it, it, here's the funny thing: is I, you know, I I'm not even motivated to cover any of it, and I'll explain why in a second. Uh, we're gonna look at uh, the Awake 21 website. This is the uh, you know Stovall Weems. Uh, he seems to be on my uh, radar a lot lately, but I. I want to play for you uh, a video that Stovall wanted to pass along to you from his Awake 21 conference. It's an online conference that he held, and it's from Lisa Bevere. Um, um, yeah, and uh, boy, it, talking. You know, th- th- this lady sounds like she's uh, hanging out with the Patricia King gang. Makes you wonder why somebody like Stovall, a seeker-driven, purpose-driven guy, would uh, be... Um, featuring her on his website. And uh, and then uh, Rob Ketterling, um, uh, pastor of a church out there in Minnesota, um, in Apple Valley, Minnesota, he's uh, he's also got a video up there where we're going to hear from how to hear from God. Yeah, if you want to know how to hear from God, then this is uh, you know, definitely going to be good stuff for you. And then, uh, and then we're going to be hearing from John Ortberg. Um, I want you to hear audio from uh, you know from video segments from his uh, book, uh, the video teachings that goes with his book entitled "The Me I Want to Be." <sighs> yeah, and uh, and kind of point out the fact that what you're hearing from John Ortberg is not Christian sanctification; it's something completely different. And then our sermon review in hour number two comes to us via City of Grace in Mesa, Arizona. Doctor Terry Christ. Uh, presiding in the name of the sermon is you gotta have a dream. That's right, you gotta have a, you gotta have a dream. So uh, you know, lots of stuff that we're going to cover today. So uh, with that, let's dive into the program proper. And, uh, from the uh, Christian Post, the uh, headline reads: Rick Warren urges pastors to say radical yes to God. Hang on, I gotta take a sip of my Earl Grey. Ah, yeah, much better. <sighs> yeah, this is um. The only way I can put it is is yawn, yawn, boring, boring. I, you know, I I think that the uh, Rick Warren is no longer the exciting center of the uh, seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement. In fact, he's becoming about as relevant as uh, Robert Schuler was. Um, yeah, well, yeah, is yeah. Yeah, poor Robert Schuler. I mean, you live by relevance and you die by relevance. And I think Rick Warren is. Um, we can we can safely say uh, um, his his most exciting days are behind him. And this Radicalis conference. Oh, good night. Let me read a little bit of this news story though, because I mean, I I you got to hand it to the folks at Saddleback. At least they're able to get the Christian Post to cover something about Rick Warren's co- latest conference that started yesterday and. I mean, even the Twitterverse is pretty quiet about it. I'll explain why in a second. But anyway, Lake Forest, California, Pastor Rick Warren kicked off the 2011 Radicalis Conference on Tuesday by asking church leaders and pastors and pastors' wives to start representing Jesus by saying yes to God in every aspect of their lives first before asking others to do the same. Well, I mean, I, I, I think Rick Warren's advice is pretty sage here. I, I hope they all take that advice. And since they are all sinful and realize that they're not saying yes to God in all, every aspect of their lives, if they're consistent, then what they'll do is they'll step down as pastors. 
<clears throat> anyway, he says, this is recorded, quote, there are two reasons that non-believers don't know Jesus Christ. One is that they've never met a Christian. Uh, the other is they have, said Warren to a crowd of more than 2,000 people at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest. 2,000, huh? You know, I just, yeah. Yeah, Saddleback, the uh, the sanctuary there at Saddleback, I think they can hold up to 6,000 people. Only 2,000 showed up, huh? Anyway, <clears throat> quote, what we're doing, what we're going to be doing this week, looking at different areas in your life where you need to say yes to God and where your church needs to say yes to God in, in a radical way, Warren emphasized. But in order for believers to be able to say yes, they first need to experience God's radical love. They need to know that they are his beloved. To elaborate on this idea, Kay Warren, the wife of Rick Warren, was invited to speak about the lavish love of God and how it moves individuals to radical action. Said um, um, Kay Warren, I don't know about you, but I rarely do anything out of fear, guilt, duty, or obligation. She said, I may do it, but I don't like it. She explained how unbelievers sense fear, guilt, and a sense of duty from those who try to evangelize them, immediately feeling they need to say no to them because they don't want to adopt that type of religion. (sighs) Yeah. Anyway, you get the idea. But uh, just 2,000 people at Radicalis. I think I know why. Uh, Here's Rick Warren uh, and the uh, promo. uh, uh, This is audio from the promo video for this this year's Radicalis conference. I think I know why it's not that big of a hit this year. What is Radicalis? It's not a fungus. It's not a medication. It's not Lady Gaga's latest song. It's the most radical conference of the year, February 22 to 25 at Saddleback. Most radical conference of the Really? The most radical? Con- wow, okay. Radicalis means from the root, and you find the roots of absolute devotion, of total dedication. Oh, all law. Absolute devotion, total dedication. Yeah, I don't believe it for a second. All law. Of complete surrender. Radicalis was about hearing speakers like Matt Carter. <laughs> Matt Carter, really? Is that the best you could do? Stephen Furtick. Stephen Furtick, the Sun Stand Still guy, huh? Dave Gibbons, Sean Lovejoy, Pete Wilson, Sergio Delamara, men of... (laughs) Hang on a second. God, who are radically devoted to making a difference with their lives. Yeah, right, men of God, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, see, here's the deal: is the reason why I, you know, this, I, th- I think this is proof positive that Rick Warren's most exciting days and you know most relevant days are behind him, and uh, uh, the the star-studded list of guys that uh, he's listed who are going to be speaking at Radicalis this year. Yeah, that's pretty much scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, they're, they're, think of them as third-string injured reserve Bible twisters. Uh, I, I think uh, I think Stephen Furtick is on the cusp. I mean, I think he's going to be uh, he's he's going to move from the uh, third string to maybe second string injured reserve, and he, uh, in, in, uh, eventually he's going to be a headliner, and he'll, he'll make the he'll make the you know the 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 the, the cut for the you know, the prime team. Uh, he's on his way to that, but Pete Wilson and the, oh man, um, yeah, no. Um, Matt, yeah, Matt, Car- uh, Matt Carter. Oh man! So uh, yeah, I think the I think um, yeah. Apparently, uh, poor Rick Warren. See, and I know something about injured reserve players. I mean, living uh, in Central Indiana, you know, we root for the uh, the Colts football team. Don't tell Pastor Swirla that though, because he thinks all of the teams in the AFC are evil or whatever. 
Um, but anyway, um, the, 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 this year, though, I mean, we had a lot of injuries, a lot, a lot, a lot of injuries on our football team. And as a result of it, I mean, it was a miracle that we even made the playoffs. And um, but I mean, it, I, I was making jokes about halfway through the season. I was saying that, uh, you know, uh, Coach Caldwell, the head coach of the uh, Indianapolis Colts. I mean, it was such a desperate situation every week. We were, you know, we were losing, you know, three, four guys every game. You know, they were getting injured and these uh, serious injuries that were going to take weeks and months to heal. That uh, I was convinced that uh, that um, uh, Coach Caldwell, that what he was basically doing is, you know, looking in the stands and saying, you know, that guy looks like he could catch a football and that guy looks like he's big enough to maybe play for us. Why don't you ask them to come on down on the field and we'll, we'll suit him up and we'll, we'll play him. Uh, and I think that's what Rick Warren's doing here. I mean, uh, this these are all third-string injured reserve Bible twisters. These these guys are not headliners at all. And as for radically committed men of God, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, not hardly. Um, yeah, so, yeah. It, it, and, um, in fact, it's I, you can call this year's Radicalis Snooze Fest 2011. Snooze Fest 2011. In fact, it reminds me of... Um, uh, uh, Professor uh, Ludwig uh, from you know from the Donald Duck uh, Disney. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's see if this re- conjures up any uh, any memories for you. But uh, this is uh, here. Listen. Nora along with Ludwig. I would like you to hear one of the records for the album right now, would you? Come on, sing along. Yeah, Radicalis. Those exciting third string injured reserve Bible twisters. Snooze Fest 2011 at Saddleback Church. I'm getting tired. Just thinking about it. There you go. And I, I think that's appropriate. Yeah, I'm just getting tired. I mean, just bored out of my school. That was the reason why I don't plan on covering any anybody from Radicalis this year. I mean, <sighs> yeah, so there you go. We're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. I'm going to talk about an email tomorrow, but uh, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Yeah, or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate. Yeah, you got all that. Anyway, I'm falling asleep. I'm going to go wake up. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> It's 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, <sighs> sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance and an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 <laughs> we'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, third string Bible, uh, inter-reserve Bible twisters, yeah, they're not pastors. They're entertainers, 
They sure are entertaining. They know how to market and draw a crowd. They don't know how to handle God's word at all. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. This is a partnership. That's right. It's a partnership. I do all the work. I do the production work. I do the all that. You know, you know how it works. And uh, you sit there, you go, I, I'm, I'm really learning from this. I'm growing. My eyes are, I, I, I'm beginning to better understand what, uh, what Scripture is about. I see Christ in the Scriptures, and oh, I see how I've been deceived or how people are deceiving people in the name of Jesus. And I want to I wanna help support uh, what Chris is doing there at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. So uh, you head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. You know the, you know the drill. When you uh, click on the uh, join our crew button, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 monthly to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here. Now, uh, since I don't really have a an update theme for Stovall Weems, um, we reviewed a sermon of his yesterday, and that was a veritable train wreck. And uh, boy, miserable handling of the story of uh, Abraham. And uh, and I told you a couple weeks ago that Stovall Weems has a website called Awake Twenty One. Awake Twenty One. And it's it's an online uh, conference, and you can find it at awake21.org, and it's just a veritable smorgasbord of really bad, yuck stuff. Anyway, um, and uh, St- see, Stovall, I think he was able to get like some higher-profile first-string Bible twisters for his Awake 21 conference. In fact, uh, that, remember the audio I played a, a while ago from Rick Warren giving really bad advice to a pastor who's struggling um, yeah, that's where I got that from, is from this uh, from this Awake21.org website. But I, I want you to hear this. Um, I mean, what is this doing here? I, I should play the Fractured Fairy Tales music, but I don't think that Lisa Bevere is officially part of the Patricia King gang. But this, what you're about to hear is kind of in that um, vein. See if you can make sense of any of this stuff that Lisa Bevere says at the... Um, Awake21.org online conference. Yeah, well, again, uh, apparently Stovall was able to get far better. First string uh, Bible twisters rather than third string injured reserve like poor Rick Warren was only able to get for his Radicalis conference. But anyway, here, here's uh, Lisa Bevere. See if you can make heads or tails of this. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Bevere. I'm so excited that you have set apart this time that you've said, I'm going to consecrate myself. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to seek God. I'm going to cry out on behalf of my nation, my family, my city, my world, and the call of God on your life. Thank you for doing that. I consider it an honor to speak into your life. You know, last year at the beginning of the year, I really felt like the Holy Spirit told me that it was a decade of change. I oh, what? <laughs> really? Um. So the Holy Spirit told you that uh, we've launched into a decade of change. Hmm. You know what's funny is, is um, things generally do change pretty significantly over a course of 10 years. You know, I, I just think uh, technologically speaking, I mean, here we are, it's 2011, and uh, you know, Apple's getting ready to announce information regarding their next line of MacBook Pros and and the next generation iPad and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, and I think back 10 years ago, 10 years ago, 
yeah, we had computers and the internet then, but it, I mean, it, it, things have radically changed. I mean, you know, so you, aren't all decades decades of change? <clears throat> but you 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 claim to actually hear this directly from the Holy Spirit, Lisa. Okay, all right. Really felt that God quickened to me, First Timothy chapter one, and in First Timothy chapter one, it says, "With the prophecies that have gone before you, wage good warfare." Uh, okay, hang on a second. First Timothy chapter one. Um, yeah, I always get nervous when uh, people say they're hearing directly from God. Um, yeah, because uh, yeah, we just got to test to see if uh, if there actually are or not. But if you have your Bible, I mean, since she referenced First Timothy chapter one, why don't we read it? You know, and see if First uh, Timothy chapter one has anything to do with the decade of change that the Holy Spirit told her about. First uh, Timothy chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of our of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain peoples not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Hmm. You know, it's, it's funny. It's just, it sounds like the Apostle Paul was warning Timothy about false teachers like Lisa Bevere. Anyway, the uh, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things with which they make such confident assertions. <laughs> it just sounds like... <clears throat> Yeah, all the first string um, Bible twisters that we cover here at Fighting for the Faith. It sounds like those guys. Anyway, First uh, Timothy one eight. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but it's laid down for the lawless and for the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, uh, for the unholy and the profane, and those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, I, I, I thank him who has given me strength, uh, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful by appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The sa- this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. I, now, this, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith uh, a holding faith in, and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Not seeing anything in there. I'm hearing a lot about Christ and 
um, sound doctrine and how those who wander from it shipwreck their faith and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Yeah, for the forgiveness of sins was all there, but um, not seeing anything there about this how being a pretext for the decade of change. Now, Rick Warren's doing a decade of destiny. I, I wonder if the two are related. Anyway, let's continue. Let's see what Lisa Bevere has else to say. All right, here we go. It says, with the prophecies that have gone before you, wage good warfare. I believe that this is the decade where the prophecies and the blessings and the promises and the hopes that we've all had from the previous decades are going to meet us. And they aren't going to meet us as just a hope or just a wish, but they're going to meet us as a weapon. The the what's are going to meet us where and they're going to be a what? So the prophecies of the uh, the past decades are going to meet us in the decade to come, and they're not going to meet us. They're going to meet us as a weapon. Does that does does that sentence even make any sense to you? It doesn't to me. And you wield a weapon very differently than you wield a promise or a hope. Yeah. You lay hold of it and you wield it with strength, and you understand there's an adversary, and you understand there is something at risk, and there's something very precious that could be lost if you are not victorious. And so I really. If if something something will be lost if I'm not victorious. Hmm. Aren't we supposed to be proclaiming, you know, Christ victorious? You know, conqueror of sin, death, and the devil. Died on the cross for our sins. Rose again from the grave for our justification. You know, the apostles they seem to be obsessed about Jesus. You know, you know. Um, this um, <clears throat> this feels like it's really me focused. I believe that needs to be our prayer posture for this decade. I love our, our, our pr- that needs to be our pr- so that we need to handle this weapon needs to be our prayer posture for this decade. Now, when I think of prayer postures, I mean you can pray standing up, you can pray sitting down, you can pray kneeling. Um I'm not sure what she means by a prayer posture at this point. I mean, so I should be postured for holding a weapon. So when I pray, I should hold out my hand like I'm wielding uh, <clears throat> the the sword given to uh, King Arthur and the Lady of the Lake, yeah, Excalibur. I mean, what what are you talking about? Habakkuk too, and this is. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, "I will stand my watch." You know, each of us we have a watch. Uh, wow, is this all over the place? Habakkuk too, huh? Oh, well, we might as well flip on over to there too. Habakkuk too. Apparently, there's something in there. Uh, well, thank God it's verse one. <laughs> just, uh, um. <clears throat> yeah, Habakkuk uh, two. You know what? I, I believe in context. Uh, let's add a little bit of context to do this. Habakkuk chapter one. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, start at verse eighteen. Uh, uh, well, no, hang on a second here. Hey, let's see. Habakkuk chapter one. There is no. There is no verse eighteen. I was looking at chapter two. Um, Habakkuk one. How about verse twelve? Habakkuk one twelve, and then we'll kind of read. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Great question. Uh, you make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up 
with a hook, and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Chapter 1, verse 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me, and I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, and it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, and it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Uh, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all of his own peoples. Shall not all of these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not the debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be, uh, then you will be spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Yeah, um, I'm not seeing anything in Habakkuk 2 either really relating to us, at least in the way Lisa Bevere, I mean, she's... It's like, you know, one of those pinball machines. I mean, it's like watching the metal ball in the pinball machine. It's going bing, bong, bing, bong, bong. It's just shooting all over the place here. I set myself on the rampart. The rampart was a position of battle. It was a position of looking out among the fields to see what was going on. we got to choose. We're going to set our watch, and we're going to ascend and set ourselves on a rampart. It says, and watch to see what he will say to me. You know what? We need to be people of vision. We need to be able to see what God is saying, not just he. Uh, if I want to see what God has said, I open up my Bible and I read. Um, hmm. Somehow I don't think that's what she's talking about. Hear what God is saying, but actually see what he is saying. We need to be people that have eyes to see, ears to hear, a mouth unafraid to speak, a heart enlarged to believe for huge things. Now, if you don't have eyes to see and you don't have ears to hear, if you're deaf and you're blind, wouldn't God have to, you know, perform a miracle so that you can see and hear? Just wanting to see and hear wouldn't make it possible for you to see and hear. But we're going to have to have his vision if we're going to be able to see what he will say. See what? And it says, and what I will answer when I am corrected. You know, I believe this is a season when we begin to say, God, what is going on? What is going on? Now, we know God is not messing up. So there has to be correction for us, for us individually, for us corporately, for us as a church body. I believe it's a season when we begin to pray, we ask God questions, and he actually brings correction to us. Yeah, you you should ask God those questions because uh, you're right. There's something terribly wrong. And what the problem is here is that you think you're hearing from the Holy Spirit, and uh, the way you're using God's Word is just an abomination. It's abysmal. You need to knock that stuff off, and what you need to do is actually read what God has revealed in His Word, and listen to that, and actually study it and use the Word correctly, and stop using you know the Bible as touchstones for whatever you think the prophetic vision for the next 10 years is going to be. Which brings answers to everybody. So it's you and I who must choose as leaders, 
as individuals, as wives, as husbands, as children, as parents, as grandparents, that we are going to set ourselves up and listen to what he might say that would correct us. You know, yeah, God tells you to get back into his word and cut this uh, nonsense out. You're not really prophetically hearing from him. You're probably either hearing your own burblings from within your own stomach or, uh, or you're hearing from, well, a demonic source. But this this isn't even coherent, yet alone from God. God corrects the children that he loves so that we can bring forth more fruit. And this is going to be a season of more fruit. And it says, then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. You know what? You don't write your interpretation of the vision. You write what you see and you let other people have a plain, clear picture of what the vision of God is. Um... What vision are you talking about? We have God's word. That they can run with it. We need people who are willing to run with the vision of God. What? No, uh, uh, no, 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 no. We need pastors who are willing to preach the word of God. You know, the, 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 what's already been revealed. What's this vision of God stuff you're talking about? <sighs> this is just crazy. We continue who are willing to run with the vision of God. What is God doing? Hey, God is rescuing people that are captive. God is calling in the lost. He is rescuing those that are in dark, broken places. He is restoring hope. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end, it will speak. It's going to have a voice. In the end, God's going to have his final say. It says, it will not lie. Hey, God is not a man that he should lie. He keeps his promises. Though it tarries, wait for it. You know what? This is a season where we are forceful on one end. And yeah, um, don't you think that if Habakkuk were still waiting for that vision, um, the fulfillment? I mean, he's dead now. Um, yeah, what was the point of God telling him to wait for it if it hasn't happened yet? And apparently, it's happening now in this decade of change. Hmm. Waiting with patient persistence. On the other, we can't go off and just do our things. We got to wait for what God wants to do because it will surely come. It will not tarry. What? <laughs> I mean, um, so much passion there. Um, it reminds me of that passage that talks about people ever learning but never coming to an accurate knowledge of the truth. You know, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. I mean, serious. I mean, uh, this is just complete gobbledygook. It makes you think, it makes you wonder if the, the people who really delve into this charismatic mysticism, mysticism, if it doesn't somehow scramble their brains so they're no longer capable of, capable of coherent biblical thought. <sighs> yeah, um, I'll keep an eye out for Lisa Bevere. I think she um, fits in the same category as Patricia King. But she's obviously got her own ministry thing going. But she sounds a lot like uh, like those folks. All right, moving along. We're going to run a little long on this segment. I want you to hear, um, maybe I'll cut this into two pieces. Uh, this will be part one today. I want you to hear uh, John Ortberg talking about his book, The Me I Want to Be. Yeah, see if you can make any sense of this. Redemption is always the redemption of creation. And here's the good news. What happens when you flourish is... Yeah, notice he says, Redemption is always the redemption of creation. What does he mean by redemption? 
Redemption, by the way, biblically is is a, is a term that has to deal with the slave market. Okay. Um, so when we talk about redemption, we're talking about redeeming slaves, uh, purchasing them. The, yeah. Just want to let you know that, but I don't think that's where he's going to go with this. So let's continue. Floor issues. You become more you. You become more that person God had in mind when he first thought you up. God wants you to become a new creation. But new doesn't mean completely different. Instead, it's like an old motorcycle that gets restored to its intended beauty. Just sounds so much more spiritual when you put the soundtrack behind it. Um, again, um, yeah, just as you're listening to this, who's he talking about? Is, I mean, is this what God had in mind with for biblical sanctification? If so, then why hasn't the Christian church taught this view of sanctification like in its entire history until like now? You know, just wondering, you know. Nice music. Here comes the next platitude. So here's where we start. There is a God, and it is not you. Uh, That's great. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit more about God? I mean, since you're saying, you know, there is a God and he's not me, I, I agree. That's true. Can you tell me something about God? Are you confessing and talking about the triune God? Or are you just talking about the generic God? Are you talking about Allah? Are you talking about, you know, some, you know, Vedon, Zudon, whatever, Don, you know? Uh, what are you talking about here, you know? This means you're not your handiwork, and your life is not your little project. Your life is God's project. Only God knows your full potential, and God is guiding you toward that best version of you all the time. Really? Um... So where in the Bible does it say that um, God knows my full potential and that he's guiding me towards it all the time? By the way, you know, the question comes up immediately then is what happens if a non-believer is getting a hold of this particular video? You know, they want to be a better me, and um, and so they're learning that there's a God and that they're not them, but... Um, should we believe that this is true for non-believers who are dead in trespasses and sins? And doesn't John Orkberg teach at a Presbyterian church? Um, and, and I mean, doesn't the Presbyterian church, correct me if I'm wrong here, but hasn't historically the Presbyterian church taught the doctrine of total depravity? Which, by the way, is biblical. We Lutherans call it the doctrine of original sin, that people by nature are dead in trespasses and sins. So this idea that God is, you know, is constantly pushing me towards the me he wants me to be, um, how, how it just sounds to me like it's running counter to the biblical teaching on uh, total depravity. Version of you all the time. 
God has many tools, and God is never in a hurry. Now, that can be frustrating for us, but even in our frustration, God's at work to produce patience in us. God never gets discouraged by how long it takes. And God delights every time you get it right, every time you grow. Only God can see this best version of you. By the way, uh, Hebrews 11.6, um, got to be careful there because uh, Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So even if you're like, you know, having some life change and, you know, you're, you're becoming closer to somebody who's more mature and, you know, and maybe a more upstanding citizen or whatever, um, yeah, Hebrews 11.6 says without faith, that's trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, you know, we got a problem here. Who's his audience? More concerned with you reaching your full potential than you are. God made you to flow. So is Christian sanctification God wanting me to reach my full potential? I mean, where does it teach that in the Bible? Flourish to receive life from outside yourself that creates vitality in you and produces blessing beyond you. Flourishing is God's gift and God's plan. And when it happens, you're in harmony with God, with other people, with yourself, even with creation. Flourishing, though, is not measured by outward signs. It's not about how much money you make or what you own or how you look. It means becoming the person God had in mind when he created me. It means moving towards God's best version of me. God thought you up, and God knows just what you're intended to be. He has many good works for you to do, but they're not like to-do lists, the kind that we give spouses or employees. They're signposts to your true self. As God helps you grow... Oh, so... um, uh, So the, the good works God wants me to do, they're signposts to finding my true self. Yeah, right. As God helps you grow, you will change, but... This is very important. You will always be you. An acorn can grow into an oak tree, but it cannot grow into a rose bush. It could be a healthy oak, it could be a stunted oak, but it won't be a shrub. You You know, funny that you would use that metaphor because Jesus says that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Yeah, a bad that's what Jesus said. You know, a bad tree can't produce good fruit, and since all of us by nature are dead in trespasses and sins and children of the devil, um, and at war with God. Um, and then you got Romans 8 that says that, you know, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't keep God's law. In fact, it cannot do so. Um, yeah, so um, doesn't the Bible teach that all human beings are, well, they're, they're, um, they're bad trees? Yeah. So um, um, how a, a bad tree can't, transform itself into a good tree that would take a miracle and isn't that what isn't repentance and the forgiveness of sins and trust in christ you know as god as jesus calls it you know being born again okay does that play into this me i want to be at all i mean is there anything there about repentance and the forgiveness of sins and coming to grips with that fact that by nature i am a sinner at war with god uh the this pastor who preaches at a Presbyterian church. You will always be you. You could be a growing healthy you or a languishing you, but God did not create you to be anybody else. God pre-wired your temperament, 
He determined your natural gifts and your talents. He made you to feel certain passions and no desires. He planned your body and your mind. All of your uniqueness is God designed. And what happens when you flourish is you actually kind of become more you. You become more that person God had in mind when he thought you up. You don't just become holier, you become youier. So, so, so I become so what? I I just don't become holier. I become youier, meier. Can you show me to a, a single passage in the Bible that teaches any of this stuff? Yikes! You become a new creation, but new does not mean completely different. God doesn't want to exchange you. He wants to redeem you. Redeem me. Yes, that's a biblical term. Um, can you tell me what it means? Uh, what was the redemption price for my redemption? Hmm? Uh, care to elaborate on that? Want to talk about... Because, I mean, if you're going to talk about redemption, you can't discuss redemption apart from the cross and apart from the shed blood of Christ. Because if you do that, then you're not really talking about biblical redemption, are you? ...completely different. God doesn't want to exchange you. He wants to redeem you. If you're a bookish contemplative type waiting for God to change you into the kind of guy that wears lampshades on their heads at parties, good luck on that. Maybe you're a raging extrovert and you get tired of putting your foot in your mouth all the time. Don't you wish you could become more like those of us who are more introverted, wise, calm, restrained? It's never going to happen. But to be redeemed and to flourish as the me God wants me to be, there are some alternative me's I will have to stop being. God designed you to be you. And so he will not ask you, why weren't you Moses or David or Esther or Peter or Mary or John Ortberg? If you don't pursue the life we're talking about, he'll ask you, why weren't you you? Really, um, where in the Bible does it say that God is going to ask me, how come I wasn't me? Isn't, aren't I the problem? Isn't my sinful nature the what, what Bible verse does it ever say that when Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, that he's going to say, why weren't you you? Hmm. Yeah, this is frustratingly bad. In fact, the focus is like, uh, it's like completely on the wrong thing. I, I'm the sinner in need of a savior. Apparently, I'm being saved from not being the better me. I don't know. God designed us to delight in our actual lives. And of course, pretending to... I thought we're supposed to delight in God. I'm sorry. The Bible just keeps getting in the way of what this guy is saying. I mean... Really hard work. That's why we feel so tired after a first date or a job interview or someplace where I feel like i got to project an image. It's why we're drawn to transparency. And we long to go someplace where we can just be ourselves. Such a relief. Not to have to... Yeah, but see, the thing is, is that when you understand what Scripture says, that there is no one who seeks God. There was no one righteous. No, not one. All have turned away. If I'm being myself, and then I'm I'm sinning and in, in need of a Savior. I, I, myself is the problem. 
I do or to know more than I actually do or to be more humble than I really am. Inside you is a real person without pretense or guile. Really, and where does the Bible say that within me is a person without pretense or guile? One verse would suffice, John. And you and I both know there isn't no verse that says that, otherwise you'd be quoting it right now. Guile. And the good news is we never have to pretend with God. In fact, genuine brokenness pleases God more than pretend spirituality. Uh, brokenness about what? Brokenness over what? What am I supposed to feel broken about? My sinful rebellion against God? The fact that I don't do what God commands me to do? Is that, is that what you mean? You know, contrition and sorrow because I've rebelled and sinned against God? Sorrow and contrition and brokenness like the, the tax collector in the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector? Is that the kind of brokenness you're talking about? Why do I think that's not, like, not even, even on your radar right now? Oh, yeah, because it's all about me. If I'm ever going to get to the real me I want to be, I have to start by being honest about the me I am. Every one of us has a me that we think we should be, which is at odds with the me that God made us to be. Sometimes letting go of that self may be a relief. Sometimes it'll kind of feel like death. Where is any of this in the Bible? You know, I'm going to just pause it right there. We'll cover more of this on another edition of Fighting for the Faith. But let me uh, have a little musical interlude. Musical interlude here. It is all about you. Now, the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about now I lift my name on high. All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you because you are unique and you love you there is none like me no one else all this can for do only 1995 like operators are standing by to serve you and i am why i sing and i am why i live if you order now you'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. Call 1-800-MEET-ME-ME or order online at meetmyselfandi.com. Call today because no one can praise you like you. Yeah, um... That's what I'm hearing from John Ortberg. That's just me worship. And uh, that's not the biblical teaching on Christian sanctification, like, at all. The focus is, like, 180 degrees out of focus. It's wrong. You're looking at the wrong thing. You're not supposed to be looking at you. You're the sinner in need of the Savior, and the Savior is Christ. We're to be looking to him. Wow. Wow, wow, what a mess. 
All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Uh, we'll be right back. Sermon review. Uh, it's not going to be any better. Ah! Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Well into hour number two. I mean, how on earth can anybody think that that's biblical sanctification, becoming the me that I have always wanted to be? If we're dead in trespasses and sins, then the me I want to be has nothing to do at all with God or his will or his commandments. Unbelievable. This is just another blatant shilling for some man-made self-help thing and then baptizing it in God's name. Let's move along. Seems to be a lot of that going around nowadays. The good, the bad, the ugly... We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via City of Grace Church, Mesa, Arizona. Pastor uh, Dr. Terry Chris presiding. Oh, man. The uh, name of this sermon, get ready for this one. Ready? You gotta have a dream. 
pay attention to how he uses scripture and where the emphasis is as far as the syllables that he's speaking. And just ask yourself, is this a faithful teaching uh, from what God's word really says? Are we being pointed to Christ and him crucified for our sins? Is this really what the Bible's all about? Is this something? I mean, is, is there a new 11th commandment? Thou shalt have a dream. Let me kill. So without any uh, further ado, I just, I just had to stop the music there. Uh, here is uh, Dr. Terry Crisp from the City of Grace. You got to have a dream. Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll begin in just a moment with verse 20. And while you're... Okay, Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 20. Already there's a problem. Why is there a problem? Uh, the, does anyone want to raise their hand and answer the question, why already there is a problem? Oh, yes, you over there in the back. Yes, uh, what would you have to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, you're right. That's exactly it. That's correct. The reason why there's a problem here is because we're starting in the middle of a letter. Um, it, obviously, this is not his great Ephesians sermon series, and then we're up to chapter 3, verse 20. You know, we're kind of starting off here, and the name of the sermon is you got to have a dream. Now, if you just read verse 20 out of context, um, then uh, then you could create the impression, the false impression that, well, Ephesians is that big book about dreaming. Yeah, no, it's not. Really, it isn't. And if you don't believe me, start at the beginning of the letter and read the letter like you would any other letter. You know, read, start at the beginning, dear so-and-so, and go all the way to the end, sincerely love, mwah. Yeah, yeah that, that's, when you read it in, you know, in its context, you're going to find out, yeah, this is not the big dream um, um, letter at all. In fact, uh, what Dr. Terry Christ, I don't know what he has his doctorate in, but apparently it's not in systematics or uh, hermeneutics. But um, we've got a problem here, uh, but let, let's, let's let him uh, chime in and see what he does with Ephesians chapter 3 and 20. You're turning there. Would you also join me in giving a great big welcome to those who are joining us in a video service or watching somewhere in the world on the Internet? Welcome to City of Grace. Great to have you with us today. For those who are our first-time guests, we are uh, continuing on with a series of messages called Forces That Form Our Future. And I want to take a little while today to talk to you about the force of a dream. The force of a dream. As, as we've already seen in the little video, children love to dream. But, but somehow, somewhere along life's path, we have this way of replacing our imagination with information, and we often lose sight of the possibilities that stand before us. In fact, I think that many people... What? So this is the big problem that the Bible obviously solves. I had no idea. ...stand before us. In fact, I think that many people allow the facts of life to overwhelm the longings of their heart. And we forget that God has so much more in store so, for us. Whoa, 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 whoa. So the big problem is, is we let the facts of life overwhelm the, the what's of our, the what are you talking about? I guarantee you that Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 does not teach this. 
That's why the Bible addresses it this way in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. God can do anything you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His spirit deeply and gently within us. So he's going to base this sermon on one out-of-context verse. And if you're wondering, because you know, if you have a good English translation, you just heard him and went, what? You're, I know you're scratching your heads. Uh, he was reading from the message paraphrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, big problem there with that uh, that message. Yeah, it's um, not good. And so... Um, yeah, let me back this up because I want you to hear what he's doing here. He's trying to create the impression that all of the stuff that he said beforehand is actually taught in the Bible. And so um, you gotta you gotta you gotta see the 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 magic trick. This is like sleight of hand. Have you ever um, have you ever watched a television magician and you know while you're watching it live, you sit there and go, "Wow, how did he do that?" And then, and then, if you have a TiVo, you know, you, you you TiVo it, and then you watch the magic trick over and over again. You sit in there, go, "Oh, that's how he did it. That wasn't magic at all. He just had he that." There's a in in, in magicians' parlance, they talk about misdirection. Okay, misdirection is where um, the magician does something with his hand, you know, kind of stretched out and over there to the right, you know, he's doing, and everyone's focused on that. That's and And while he's doing that, his left hand is reaching behind him and grabbing something to make it look like it's appearing magically. It's called misdirection. What Dr. Terry Christ is doing here is the, is the biblical doctrinal form of misdirection. Watch again how he does it. Well, let's rewind the tape and let's Watch how the technique is done. Here we go. I think that many people allow the facts of life to overwhelm the longings of their heart. And we forget that God has so much more in store for us than we possibly could imagine. That's why the Bible addresses it this way. In Ephes- okay, now notice he was talking about we're over getting overwhelmed by the facts of life, overwhelming our dreams and our aspirations. And that's why the Bible addresses it this way. <gasps> Really, the Bible really addresses the big problem of how we sometimes life just causes us to lose sight of those big dreams that we had when we were children. And then he then quotes a verse out of context from a very bad paraphrase to create the impression that apparently God's all about helping you have a dream and helping you to realize those dreams that you had when you were just a child. <clears throat> yeah, um, that's how the sleight of hand works. So he distracts you, and then he, while he's doing that, see, poof, he just made it look like the Bible teaches us. Now, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to put this back into context. Now, I'm not I don't have time to read all of the letter. You know, I do have a radio program, but I'm going to read far more Bible uh in this in the next few minutes than most seeker-driven pastors read in an entire year of sermons, okay? Um so if you have your Bible, flip on over to Ephesians chapter 1. Not not, not 1, 2, okay? 
Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, or the churches in Ephesus, he says, And you, Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all at once lived in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yeah, that section of Scripture completely obliterates uh, John Ortberg's Me, I Want to Be theology. Yeah, it, this, this, just this section of the Bible just pummels that to uh, oblivion. But anyway, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your of your own doing. This is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice all the emphasis on what Christ has done. The scriptures are about Jesus and what he's done for us. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, and through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Next chapter, we continue. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone 
uh, f- uh, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, that, w- that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, and according to the riches of his glory, that he might grant he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being uprooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, does that verse, when you put it back in context, say that God's all about helping you realize your lost childhood dreams? I don't think so. can do anything you know far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His Spirit deeply and gently within us. I love that line. He doesn't do it through command and control. He doesn't do it through force of might. He doesn't do it through threats and through withholding grace and affection by, by pushing us, the Scripture says. But, but He works in us by His Spirit, deeply and gently within us. Now, I want to take a few minutes to talk to you about how to nurture your dreams. Because I believe that every person in... Okay, whoa, wait a second. How is it that you are taking Ephesians chapter 3.20, when you put it back in its context, and somehow turning that into a verse that teaches us that, that, God, that God has that wants us to nurture and take care of our dreams? The passage doesn't teach that. Us. Now, I want to take a few minutes to talk to you about how to nurture your dreams. Because I believe that every person in this room has a dream, something significant that you want to experience in life. Um, Even if that's true, everyone has a dream about something they want to experience in life. That's probably true. That's not the point of this passage at all. Your job, pastor, is to preach the word. You're not preaching the word here. You are literally off-roading. You're off into spiritual bizarro land. Your family or a dream in your career. It might be a dream in a ministry that you feel that God has called you to, but every single one of us... Yeah, there it is again. You know, it's so funny these guys keep talking about that because every time I think and reflect on it, you know, my big dream is that this ministry continues to grow and grow to the point where these jokers get thrown out of their churches and those churches repent and put pastors in place who actually preach the word and proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins and proclaim sound biblical doctrine Sunday after Sunday and repent of this narcissistic, me-centered, false doctrine. Yeah, that's my big dream. Oh, I hope it comes true. 
have a longing for more than what we have currently settled for. You were created to dream. Say that after me. Say, I was created to dream. Come on, say it again. I was created to dream. And what Bible verse says that? Ephesians 3.20 doesn't say it. So where in the Bible does it say you were created to dream? I was created to dream. It's one of the unique things that makes us human. God created each of us with the capacity to imagine a future that is very different from the one that we're living in. And that's what a dream really is. A dream is simply an inner picture of a world that is different from the one we're presently living in. It's this inner knowing that things are not as they could be. There's more. There's different. That's right. Again, see, my big dream is a dream without you jokers, you entertainment self-help gurus who pass yourselves off as Christian pastors. I dream of a world where you guys are gone. Even though I I may have come from uh, a long line of people who have settled, and even though I may not be where I'd like to be, within me we think there is this longing for more. There is this sense that if the conditions were just right, something big could happen in my life. That's a dream. It's this sense of God on the inside of us. The Bible describes it as eternity put in our hearts, this sense that we were created for more. You may be here this weekend dreaming about a different future in your relational world or in your financial world. Or maybe that's not even a big deal to you. Maybe everything's going well. Apparently, we all have different worlds that you know we compartmentalize. We have a financial world. We have a relational world. I, apparently, I have a theological world. Hmm weekend dreaming about a different future in your relational world or in your financial world or maybe that's not even a big deal to you maybe everything's going well relationally maybe financially you know you, you, you just couldn't care but maybe for you you're dream- so if if i'm doing well financially relationally uh career-wise per- all that kind of, i don't really need jesus do i yeah i don't even need to go to these church- i mean if i've got it all together i mean i'm Living the American dream, I don't need Jesus then, because apparently Jesus is all about helping you realize your big dreams. Yeah, that's right. It's the American dream. Ah, successful, thin. Um, what else? Uh, um, good relationships. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, socially well adjusted. Um, big house, nice car, well behaved children. Ah, oh, yes, yes. I can see it now. And you know what? There's going to be a lot of people in hell who live that life. Just want to say that, you know. Or a different house or, or a car or whatever the case may be. Maybe your longing is for peace, emotional stability, freedom from anxiety and fear. Whatever the case may be, God has created each of us with this capacity to long for more and to subsequently envision a different future. there is. Oh, I see. So that if it really, uh, all of those longings I have in my heart for influence and affluence and a bigger house and all of those longings, God put them there. Oh, isn't that great? What a deity this is. This is the deity who's going to meet all of my dreams. Hmm. I think I need to dream bigger, you know, really, really big. 
I mean, do I want a Mercedes or a Bentley? Uh, no, 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 Lamborghini. Yeah, those. You know what's funny? Those Lamborghinis. I mean, uh, the the one of them costs as much as a really big house in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. I just need to set my. Uh, isn't it great that God wants this? In fact, God's the one who put those desires inside of me for those things. Wow. To long for more and to subsequently envision a different future. There is a dream incubating with every per- within every person. Now, unfortunately... Uh, by the way, notice that he says there's a dream incubating within every... He didn't say anything. Uh, he didn't actually bring up an actual Bible verse that says that this is a good thing. You know, because the uh, Bible talks about coveting as a sin. It talks about the lust of the eyes and setting up money as an idol and, you know, things like that. In fact, uh, Jesus, in the, you know, the parable he tells about the seeds, you know, the farmer goes out and throws seed everywhere, talks about how, you know, some people, they hear the word with, and, you know, they respond in joy and immediately sprouts up, but the cares of this world choke it out so that it's not fruitful. Yeah, somehow, if you read the theology in the Bible um, and compare it to the theology being spewed here by Dr. Christ, um, the, the two seem a little bit at odds. I mean, they don't sound the same at all. It's like, remember that song from Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things is not the same. Yeah, it's, it, it, I just I feel like I'm playing that little game right now. It's like one of these things just doesn't belong. Hmm. Well, the Bible belongs, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, it, and, this, and it sounds a particular way, but then I hear this, and hmm, this just sounds like it doesn't belong. I think many people in life never realize their dreams, and there are many reasons why that we won't have the time to go into, but I think one thing for most of us is that oftentimes we never realize our dreams because life has a way of contesting the dream by discouraging the dreamer. Some of you may be here today and you're just too discouraged by the disappointments of life to even think about dreaming again. Others may be here too tired to pursue your dreams. And maybe for me to even talk about dreams in this opening moments, maybe anxiety is rising on the inside of you because all you can hear is work. Work, work. The man is talking about more work. And I'm just too tired to consider a dream because a dream feels like work at this stage in my life. Or maybe you've kind of set your dreams aside because you're too busy in this season of your life. And maybe there's just so much going on in your Yeah, what if you had cancer and you were hearing this sermon, I mean, and you know that you're going to be dead in a few weeks? Hmm. Um, Second Timothy chapter three. Let me just read this, starting at verse one. Understand this: that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in the mind, disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, and my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings and that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yeah, I think that's what we're hearing here. Um, uh, Dr. Chris sounds like an imposter to me. He's deceiving and being deceived. And these seeker-driven guys, these purpose-driven guys have gone from bad to worse. Um, I mean, this is just exactly what the Apostle Paul warned about. Now, keep this in mind. Here, the Apostle Paul, at the beginning of cha- uh, chapter 3 in Second Timothy, is warning uh, young Timothy. And here's the deal. Throughout all of history, we've had people who are lovers of self and lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and disobedient to their parents. And you miss the point there in this passage because you, if you look outside in the world, that's how sinners behave normally. But the key to understanding this warning actually comes to the fact it comes in verse 5. So let me read this again in context. Understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, okay? People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, okay? All of those descriptors are not descriptors of the world outside, and the reason why I know that, because verse 5 says this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, is in, in that description, that list, that starts in verse 1 and continues all the way through verse 4. This is a description of people in the church, because verse 5 says that they have the appearance of godliness. Heathen, pagan sinners have no appearance of godliness. This is a description of what the apostate church is going to look like in the last times. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of great difficulty. Now, let me take what we know from verse 5 and bring it to the front. There will be times of great difficulty. There will be people in the church who have the appearance of godliness but deny the power thereof. They will be people who will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And now that you know that that list is talking about people in the church, what do you think about what you're hearing? busy in this season of your life 
And maybe there's just so much going on in your life and not that all of it's productive and meaningful and significant, but your life just kind of spun out of control. And so you've kind of pushed aside the more important things. You've kind of pushed aside the greater things. You've set aside what you really want because you're so busy trying to manage what you already have. And then maybe there are those here this weekend who just kind of lost focus. Life happens to you. Situations present themselves to you. Circumstances oppose you. Whatever the case may be, you're too distracted to focus. But but here's what I want you to see. In spite of whatever it may be, and I'm, I'm talking this weekend to thousands of people, and, and we all come from unique circumstances, and, and, and so it's kind of hard to, to speak to everybody's reality, but here is one thing common to all of us. God has a dream for your life. God has an extraordinary plan for your life. Really? And where does the Bible say this? This sounds like that theology of that's really conducive with lovers of self. You know, the thing we heard from John Ortberg, too. You know, the me I've always wanted to be, having a form of godliness, but this is an imposter sermon. You're not really a pastor. You're not really a Christian minister. This is the theology of those who love themselves. But but the Bible makes it clear in Ephesians 3.20 that God has a plan for us. And the way he gets us into that is not through aggressively pushing us, but through working deeply and gently within us. God has a plan. That's why I want to challenge you for the next few minutes of time to kind of set aside all that keeps you from dreaming and to ask God to awaken your heart to dream again. In fact, I, I want to just pray that. It's a little unusual, but let's just stop right here and pray. Can we do that? Just bow your head. Say, in your own words, just kind of silently in your... Listen to the prayer. I I, I want to just pray that. It's a little unusual, but let's just stop right here and pray. Can we do that? Just bow your head. Say, in your own words, just kind of silently in your heart. Jesus, I pray this weekend that you would awaken our hearts to dream. For every person discouraged, distracted, exhausted... For every person overwhelmed by the issues of life, awaken our hearts to dream. But but maybe even more, Lord, help us to realize when we embrace your dream, you supply the power to fulfill that dream. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, Amen. amen. Now, the first thing I want you to see this weekend is that to dream is to enter the creative nature of God. To dream, say it with me, number one. To okay. What verse in the Bible states that to dream means to enter the creative nature of God? Where is this taught in the Bible? Which of the apostles ever pointed this out as an important doctrine that needs to be embraced and believed by Christians? Aaron has a dream about what their child could be. God has a dream for you. He has a dream for me. He has a dream for humanity. He is dreaming about what we could do if we become willing to partner with him and enter into his world of power and creativity. Listen to Jeremiah 29, 11. I think many of us know it. We've read it. Some of you have told me it's your favorite verse. But Now, notice he's going to Jeremiah chapter 29, 11. Go back earlier this, uh, you know, less than a week. Go back in the archives of Fighting for the Faith. I clearly show Jeremiah 29, 11 is not written to you. It does not promise you 
that God is going to prosper you. It's written to the exiles of that were sent into Babylon. Know it. We've read it. Some of you have told me it's your favorite verse. But I think oftentimes we read Jeremiah 29, 11, thinking about ourselves. But I want to invite you for a moment to think about it as it relates to God. Don't make yourself the center of the verse. Let's put God as the center of the verse. And listen to the emphasis there. When God declares in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you. Not abandon you. Plans to give you the future that you hope for. That's the language of a dreamer. That's God saying, listen, if you'll trust me in this, if you'll partner with me in this, if you'll work with me in this, I've... That passage wasn't written to you, and you reading it from the message just made it worse. Okay? Plain and simple. This is exactly the kind of man, the kind of preacher that the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago prophesied about and warned us about. This man is an imposter. He's not teaching God's word at all. He's scratching, itching ears because the people in the church have become lovers of self. If you partner with me in this, if you work with me in this, I've got it all mapped out. And even though it may seem overwhelming to you, I'm not asking you to manage the details. I'm not even asking you to make this thing happen. I'm just asking you to trust me, partner with me, work me with me, and let me lead you into the future I have designed for you. God is a dreamer. Have you ever noticed in the Bible The number of times the scripture shows us God communicates to people through the avenue of dreams and visions and revelations. Hundreds of times. And that's not God's normal mode. You will look in vain through all of the Bible to find a passage that said that's how God intends to communicate to you. He communicates to us through his word. The Bible gives us a picture in the early chapters of Genesis of a man named Abraham, the friend of God, the father of our faith. Abraham tapped into the dream that God had for him, and it was a great dream. Really? And uh, where in the Bible does it say that Abraham tapped into God into a dream? It doesn't say anything of the sort tapped into the dream that God had for him. And it was a great dream. It was a major dream. Abraham dreamed of of owning more property than Donald Trump. He, He dreamed of having more children than a Mormon bishop. I mean... Wow. Let me read that passage again. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people, and you have to understand, verse 5 makes it clear, these are people in the church. For people in the church will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. 
Uh, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in their mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I mean, to basically say that Abram tapped into God's dream and that he dreamed of having more land than Donald Trump. There isn't a passage in the Bible that says that. And the reason why Abraham is so important is, like I said yesterday during the sermon review, read read Romans 4. It says in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God. He trusted God, and God credited it, credited it to him as righteousness. You'll look far and wide to find a passage that says that Abraham dreamed of having more land than Donald Trump. All of this temporal stuff that these guys are preaching, do they? I mean, it's I mean, it's it's like Satan has the people in this audience, literally in his grips. Fo- you know, it's again sleight of hand, focusing on something else while he's getting ready to pull out the machete and send them all to hell. Jesus makes it clear that Christians should expect persecution, or as Paul said here in 2 Timothy, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Christian sanctification is not becoming the me that you want to be, and Christian sanctification has nothing to do with you achieving your dreams. It's about realizing that you are a sinner and have nothing to offer God because you have rebelled against him and transgressed his law, and that you justly deserve God's wrath, but that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your sins and calls you to repent and be forgiven by his shed blood for you and his victorious resurrection from the grave for your justification. And he calls you to repent of your sinfulness, your wickedness, your idolatries, understanding that this world is passing. We're just sojourners here. But real life is not here. Real life is in eternity. Jesus is going to bring that with him when he returns. And that's the life that endures forever. And that's where our treasure should be. Jesus warned, he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And if your dream is for the here and the now, that's your treasure. And your heart will be here. And you're not building treasures in heaven at all. Because Jesus is our great reward. Jesus is our treasure. This man's an imposter. That's a good thing. He, he had a dream of doing great things to change the heart of his generation. Abraham was a dreamer. I think this weekend about Moses. Moses had a dream. I had a dream to lead the children of Israel out of the captivity of, of Egypt and into the, the freedom of Canaan's land. I had a dream to lead the greatest mass. No, he didn't. He murdered an Egyptian and ended up going off to Midian. 
married, you know, the daughter of the priest of Midian, and he was a sheep herder. He didn't have a dream. His, oh man, God called him to that work. He was like 80 years old. Unbelievable. This is ridiculous. Oh. And he had a dream of changing his world. I think about David. David, who, who was the shepherd boy, who, who was the one who was the psalmist, who wrote and sang songs to God. David, who killed a, a lion and a bear and the giant Goliath. David had a dream that was bigger than any of that. And this was David's dream. God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a, a center of revival uh, worship for Israel. I want to build you this magnificent edifice. And, and eventually he did. He, he birthed the dream in his tent. He handed the dream to his son Solomon. And Solomon took it to the next level. So that when it was all done, the dream that David had resulted in the Bible in an $80 billion temple. He had a dream of... Worship that went 24 hours a day with the best singers and dancers and musicians to ever stand on Hebrew idol and sing. I mean, he had a dream of changing his world. And he did it. I think about Esther, the young lady in the, in the Bible who had a dream of saving her people from genocide, who, who stood before. Had a, had a dream of saving her people. Oh, good night. Read Esther. She wasn't sitting there going, oh. I just my I just want to I just want to save my people from genocide. I, oh, it's just my dream. Good night. That that God chose her, and it was like utter desperation and miracle that 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 they were saved from genocide. Of saving her people from genocide, who who stood before. The king who had the capacity to take her life. And she said, if I perish, I perish. If I die in this venture, then I die in this venture. But here's what I believe. Maybe this is why I'm alive. Maybe this is a dream in the heart of God. And here Esther put herself in harm's way to dream a dream that resulted in her people, the Jewish people, being spared from destruction. The Bible is filled with the picture of dreamers. I think about Nehemiah. In the face of the destruction of Jerusalem, Nehemiah rode his donkey by and looked into the inner city and said, I can make a difference there. I can rebuild it there. God, would you work with me? Can I work with you? Can we partner together? Is this your plan for my life? And when God directed him in that... Didn't the word of the Lord come to him and tell him to do that? I mean, the way he tells the story, it sounds like Nehemiah just went... Oh, I have a dream. Oh, Lord, can you make my dream come true? God directed him in that direction. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and eventually the city. The Bible is filled with dreamers. So here's the question. What are you dreaming about? Let me phrase it a little differently. What is God dreaming for you? Because I don't want you to go out of here in the next few minutes and think, you know, just another little motivational speech about doing more and owning more and having more. That, that's not at all what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm asking. What is God's agenda for your life? What is God's dream for your life? What is God's plan for your life? 
Many of you will remember about a decade ago, Jim Collins kind of emerged in the business world and, and he wrote a book called Good to Great and then another book called Built to Last and, and he became this highly respected visionary and, and coach for successful companies and individuals. And, and Jim Collins is um, not an apostle. He's not a prophet. He, his books are not part of the New Testament or Old Testament canon. Uh, they're not part of the pseudepigrapha, the apocrypha, or any fuzz. He's a business guru. People and successful businesses, and it was this. They're dreamers, he said. And they have what he called, it is as an acronym, BHAGs. Anybody remember that? B-H-A-G. Big, hairy, audacious goals. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but what I'm talking about this weekend is something a little more. I'm talking about big, holy, audacious goals. Not just your plans, not just my plans, but God's plans for our lives. What is God dreaming about? Dreams that are so big that unless God intervenes in them, they're impossible to accomplish. Dreams that are so risky that unless God supplies the resources They'll never amount to anything. Yeah, funny. I just um, just doing a little bit of um, biblical work listening to this. Um, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Deuteronomy chapter thirteen, and we're going to look at a couple of uh, passage passages. Um, God gave some warnings um, in Deuteronomy chapter thirteen. Here's what uh, the one true God warned. He said, "If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams." If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's funny that uh, God warns us about dreamers of dreams. Huh. Jeremiah chapter 27, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Jeremiah chapter 27, um, and we'll put this in context. The verse I want you to look at is verse 9, but let's put this back in context. Jeremiah chapter 27, start at verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck and send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon, uh, by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, the king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who, by my great power and my outstretched arm, have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all things, all these lands, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes, and then many nations and great kings shall make them him their slave. 
But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and will put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword and with famine and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, or your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. Huh. How interesting that God tells Israel not to listen to their prophets, their diviners, they're sorcerers, fortune tellers, or they're dreamers. Huh. Yeah, um, sounds to me like um, there's a category of false prophet here, the dreamers. And there's a cross-reference to this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 8. Funny that he read 11, but he didn't read verse 8. Uh, verse 8 says, For thus says the Lord the, of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets, your diviners who are among you, deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. Plain and simple, Dr. Terry Christ is not teaching what the Bible teaches. He's teaching false doctrine. He's blaspheming God by hijacking the name of God and slapping it onto this and basically teaching rebellion against God via teaching people to be dreamers of dreams, and the Bible teaches nothing of the sort. It's funny, when the phrase dreamer of dreams comes up in Scripture, so far, every time I've seen the phrase come up, it's in reference to false prophets. Now, there is the prophecy from Joel that the Apostle Peter mentions in Acts chapter 2. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Yeah, and that's talking of, you know, I guess in some sense there is a positive aspect to it. But, yeah, um, that would only have to be in accord with sound doctrine, with preaching and teaching that points us to Christ and Him crucified for our sins, that exalts Jesus Christ, that proclaims the one true God and repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and correctly handles and teaches God's Word. Yeah, it would have to be in association with that, but since what we're getting is false doctrine, Bible-twisting, a mangling of God's Word, this sounds to me like the speaking and teaching of rebellion and false dreams by false prophets and false teachers and imposters because it's focusing in on me and not pointing me to Christ. Dreams that have not only the capacity to make our lives better, but make our world better to the glory of God himself. Do you have a big, holy, audacious dream? I hope so. Judith and I do. In fact, that's why we moved to the valley to plant this church that has now become City of Grace 11 years ago. Why? It's because we had a dream. 
And we're dreaming today, I'm dreaming of, of this valley being reached by the grace and power and love of Jesus Christ. I'm dreaming about us as a church becoming a city of refuge, a place of healing for people who've been burnt by sin and, and abused by religion. I'm, I'm dreaming about us taking God-honoring risks and being a people who are culturally relevant and spiritually sensitive. I'm dreaming about us seeing God multiply campuses and ministries through us. I'm dreaming about us expanding our borders and building i'm dreaming about us i'm dreaming about us about me about us expanding our borders about me and me and me hmm borders and building new buildings and and making them the center of community revitalization i am dreaming some dreams to the glory of god and these are dreams that are bigger than the moment i'm living in and bigger than the season that we exist in as a church and it'll take the power of the spirit to get to them and to fulfill them. In fact, it'll take thousands of people and m- 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 millions of dollars and years of time in order to finish. And ultimately, it'll take the Spirit working deeply and gently within us to position us for what God has assigned us to. So here I want you to see that to dream is to enter the creative power of God. Number two, the second thing I want you to see is this. Dreams are the seeds of the future. Would you say that with me? Number two, dreams are the seeds of the future. It comes right back to what we studied last weekend. Dreams are the future in seed form today. And whatever a man sows, the Bible tells us in Galatians 6, is what he reaps. The Bible says... Flip on over to Galatians chapter 6. See if Galatians chapter 6 teaches that... What you sow is what you reap, and, 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 and that means that what it's talking about is that seeds, dreams are the seeds of the future. Let me, let me back the tape up so that you can hear this, and, I, and then we'll just check the passage to see if that's what it teaches. So let me back this up just a smidge, and so I want you to listen. And we're going to last question. Does Galatians chapter 6 teach that dreams are the seeds of the future? And that what you sow is what you reap. So if you sow your dreams, you'll reap the you'll reap those dreams in the future. Listen. God has assigned us to. So here I want you to see that to dream is to enter the creative power of God. Number two, the second thing I want you to see is this. Dreams are the seeds of the future. Would you say that with me? Number two, dreams are the seeds of the future. It comes right back to what we studied last weekend. Dreams are the future in seed form today. And whatever a man sows, the Bible tells us in Galatians 6, is what he reaps. The Bible says if you, if you want mercy, blessed are the merciful. Okay, now hang on a second here. Let's go now to Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason, and and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh 
will from that flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows in the spirit, in the, to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Yeah, no, this is not teaching that dreams are the seeds of the future and that if you sow them, then you'll reap that future. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The one who sows to his own flesh, like this man is teaching people to, will reap corruption. Mercy. The Bible says if you want friendship, those who are friendly sow seeds, that become friendships. The Bible shows us the pattern all the way through. If you want people to pray for you, pray for somebody else. If you want encouragement in your life, find somebody to encourage. If you need compassion, be compassionate toward others because whatever we sow is what we reap. Well, that's the way it is with dreams. Dream. Okay, Dr. Christ, I want you to understand something. If you continue to sow this Christless false doctrine, you will reap eternal damnation. You need to repent and be forgiven for this abomination and apostasy that you're engaging in. You are not correctly handling Christ's word. It's God's word, and God will not hold you blameless. You need to repent. You are guilty of blaspheming the very name of God by what you're teaching and mishandling God's word. You might sow temporal pleasure But all of this is going to come to an end shortly. And you will not be able to stand blameless before God. You need to repent of this abomination and be forgiven. Otherwise, you will end up in hell. The great story of the the missionary and martyr Ramon Lowell. Some of you may remember it. Over 600 years ago, a Spanish monk by the name of Ramon Lull went to northern Africa to preach the gospel. He, he was rejected. He, there preaching the gospel in that hard environment, trying to minister the gospel uh, there, he was abused and he was beaten and he was actually physically affected to such a degree that, that he was dying. And in his state of dying, he was rescued unexpectedly. Two Italians showed up, hooah, and rescued him. I'm not Italian. I just felt like saying hooah. And they rescued him. And, and the story goes that as he was in a boat sailing across the Mediterranean, right there with those rescuers, those two Italians, that he looks up there from what was probably his deathbed. And in this state, he points a finger toward the horizon. And this is what he said. Beyond this sea, there is another continent that we've never seen. Send men. Send men. Now, the story goes that one of the Italians in the boat rescuing him was Stefano Colombo, a direct ancestor of Christopher Columbus. And there, hearing the passion of this dying martyr, feeling the intensity of this missional objective, he passed the story on to someone in the family who passed the story on. And finally, in the heart of young Christopher Columbus, a dream was born. 
A dream to sail westward, not knowing what was there, to be a part of taking the gospel and changing his generation. Well, you know the rest of the story. He went before the court. He was turned down. He appealed to royalty. He spent seven years in the face of opposition. And yet, finally, he was given permission. And today we sit here benefiting from the passion of one man who embraced a dream bigger than himself and set sail in search of the unknown. That's an amazing story. Dreams are seeds of the future. Third thing I want you to see is this. I I don't know if you know it or not, but we never really choose our dreams. Our dreams choose us. Would you say that with me, number three? Our dreams choose us. Now, that may startle some of you because we all kind of live in life with this little illusion that life is what we make of it. We hear the term, I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman. Life is what we make of it. I would suggest, in a broader sense, life is what you steward, especially where kingdom things is concerned. You, You never really achieve anything in the kingdom of God. You only steward what you receive, what we've given by God. I can't create talent within myself. I can't create ability within myself. I can develop what I have. I can maximize what I have. I can responsibly uh, use what I have. But I can't create what I have and neither can you. We have gifts given to us by God. Abilities given to us by God. It's amazing to look at a family and you look at children, three sons like we have, and each of them are gifted differently. They all come from the same parents. They all come from the same environment. But God, in his sovereignty, decides, I'll put this in that one and this in the other one and this in the final one. God sets us where he wants us, in the families that he chooses for us, in the nations that he has prepared us for, and he puts in us the treasures that we have within us. Then we spend all of our lives finding those treasures, developing those treasures, stewarding those treasures. And yet those treasures are gifts of God. Here's the way the Bible puts it in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. See, we don't choose our dreams. Our dreams choose us. They are divine assignments tailored for our lives. You know, James 1.17 doesn't say that. Doesn't say that, you know, anything about dreams. This is just semantic sleight of hand. From the Father of lights. See, we don't choose our dreams. Our dreams choose us. They are divine assignments tailored for our lives. Here's another way to look at it. The Bible says in Psalm 47, 4, God will choose our inheritance for us. I wonder how many people go through life choosing their own way at the expense of God's way. Psalm 47, huh, 4. Let's take a look at Psalm 47 in context. Boy, this is just terrible. Verse 4, huh? Yeah, um, starting at verse 1, Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to joy with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all of the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. 
God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the shout, sound of the trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Now notice here, uh, Psalm 47, verse 4, He chose our heritage for us. Hmm, what heritage would that be? Well, in the context here, he subdued people under us and nations under our feet. Uh huh. This is referring, this is speaking, you know, from Israel about them taking possession of the promised land. He subdued peoples under our feet, under us, and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. So um, let's now, now that we know what the text says, let's take a look at the Bible twist again from this imposter of a a pastor. Uh, Listen again. Father of lights. Hey, we don't choose our dreams. Our dreams choose us. They are divine assignments tailored for our lives. Here's another way to look at it. The Bible says in Psalm 47, 4, God will choose our inheritance for us. No, notice he used the future tense. By the way, listen carefully to the tenses of the verbs here. He said, Psalm 47, 4 says, God will choose our inheritance for us. Okay, the the text itself is not written in the future tense. Psalm 47, 4, he chose our heritage for us. Who is speaking, not you or me, but Israel. The people of Israel, children of Israel are speaking here. He chose. In the English, that's coming across in the past tense. The past tense. That's not the future tense, okay? He chose. Let me look at the Hebrew here. Um, yeah, call imperfect. Yeah, so the, uh, yeah, this is an imperfect, it's, which is a form of the past tense. Yeah, so um, notice what uh, Pastor Chris did. He changed this to future tense. Listen. Divine assignments tailored for our lives. Here's another way to look at it. The Bible says in Psalm 47, 4, God will choose our inheritance for us. No, that's future tense, and that's not what Psalm 47.4 says. You are lying to these people by twisting God's word. This is blasphemy. This is what it means to take God's name in vain. We continue. Only to come to the end of their life having accomplished something, but not the best thing. I wonder how many people climbed the ladder of success only to find out it was leaning against the wrong wall. I wonder how many people try to live out the unfulfilled dreams of their fathers, the unfulfilled expectations of their parents, what the world says to them about them, what somebody else defines them to be. And I wonder how different the world would be if we found a way to respectfully throw all of that off and say, God, I just want what you have for me. Show me who I am and show me what you've assigned me to do because in that is the power to make a difference in life. And in that is the greatest degree of fulfillment. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, before I'm out of time here, let's take a moment and talk about how to to nurture the dream God has placed within us. 
I've spent most of the message talking about what a dream is, but I want to take a few minutes to talk practically about how to nurture that. If dreams are the creative power of God, if dreams are the seeds of the future, if dreams are divine assignments, then how do we cooperate with that? How do we partner with that? How do we develop that? Here's the first thing I want to suggest to you. In order to nurture the dream that God has for you, you have to cultivate an attitude of expectation. And where does the Bible say that the cultivating an attitude of expectation is the first step in partnering with divine dreams? Any old verse would do, you know, somewhere in the Bible. You have to cultivate an attitude of expectation. As important as dreams are, they have to be infused with an attitude of expectation or they usually go nowhere in life. And the fact is, God usually meets us at the level of our expectation. What is expectation? It's faith. And where does the Bible say that God meets us at the level of our expectation? Now, you're gonna, I'm going to back this up so that you can hear just a smidge that he's going to equate that with faith. That's not what biblical faith is, but listen. They have to be infused with an attitude of expectation or they usually go nowhere in life. And the fact is, God usually meets us at the level of our expectation. What is expectation? It's faith. It's faith. Faith is No, it's not. Faith, according to the Bible, is trust. Faith is belief. It is believing trust in the promises of God that he exists, that he hears our prayers, that Christ died on the cross for our sins. It's not, faith is not the expectation that God's going to give you a dream and, and that you can partner with him on. That is, this is a perverted definition of faith that is not the biblical faith. What is expectation? It's faith. It's faith. Faith is simply expectation, a confident expectation that God's word is true, a confident expectation that God will do what he's promised he would do, a confident expectation that if I obey God, there is a blessing in obedience. Faith is a confident expectation. And without that expectation in life, life is really kind of hollow and empty. In fact, I would say without that expectation, God's power many times never really rises in our lives to the level he's designed it to rise to. Where do I get that? Well, here's where I get that. Jesus said on one occasion in the Gospels to people who were believing for miracles, this, be it unto you according to your faith. In other words, there's a promise, there's a moment, the power of God is available, but when everything... Boy, he doesn't even give the, any of the, of the context. He just draws all these conclusions from it. What he's saying is not correct. Go and put it back in context. When everything's said and done, this is coming to you at the level of what you believe. So be it unto you according to your faith. What are you expecting this weekend? Have great expectations. Let me just kind of frame it this way before I, I, I move to the next point here. A couple of weeks ago, Judith and I were out doing what we love to do, and that is kind of as a hobby of ours. We, we really enjoy architecture. We like looking at homes, beautiful homes, homes we'll never live in, but we like looking at them. In fact, if we're ever driving by your gated community and the gate is open, the chance is highly likely. Yeah. I'm ashamed to say we've been, we followed people into their neighborhoods. 
We've never done anything bad, but we're just curious. And, and we like architecture. We like beautiful homes. And so we got a builders in the church who take us out on our day off and realtors in the church. And, and, and a couple of weeks ago, one of the realtors in the church took us to look at a home that we would probably never naturally gravitate toward. But it was this amazing contemporary home, really cool modern home. And, and, and it was really interesting because as we drove into the neighborhood, we pulled up to the gate. Friend of ours, realtor, punched in the code. We go through that gate. We wind our way through the neighborhood, and then we realize there's another gate. This is a double-gated neighborhood. So we go through the second gate, and here we are in a little community with five homes total. Now, we get out, we go in, we take a look at this beautiful home, and, and we thank her for it. And so then we get in our car. She gets in her car. She turns right and goes out the gate. I look to the left and say, hey, there's more to see. And we turn left. Yeah, I'm going to be arrested for this. And so didn't break any laws, just curious. And so here we are. And here's the interesting thing. As we pull down just a couple of hundred yards into the cul-de-sac, we swing around. We see the cutest little girl you've ever seen. She must have been eight or nine. And there she is with what looks like a lemonade stand, only she's got a sign on it. It's brightly colored. She's hand-drawn it. She's got all these little kind of flowers on it as well. And it says something like, cheap babysitting. It was so cute. I wanted to take a picture, but didn't want to creep her parents out. So cute. But then it dawned on me, doesn't she know she's in a limited market? I mean, there's only five homes here. It's not like putting a sign on Shea or, or on University. I mean, she's in a double-gated community, but her expectation was right up here. And I thought, wow, what a picture of faith. I don't know where you're living. I don't know what you're experiencing. But you may feel as if you're living in a limited environment. But I'm here to challenge you this weekend to believe big, to dream big, to ask God, what do you have for my life? What have you assigned me to? And raise the level of your expectation to the level of God's assignment on your life. And what if God's assignment is for you to be eaten by lions uh, because uh, you confess Christ. Assignment on your life. Can you say amen? amen. Number two, the second thing I want you to see is this. You've got to create an attitude of incubation. Some people never reach their dreams because of the environment they live in. I don't mean the suburbs or the city. I don't mean the mountains or the beach. So where in the Bible does it say the, the second point, you know? I, I can't think of a single passage. I'm talking about the spiritual, relational, and emotional world that they've settled in. And anytime we settle into an unhealthy, toxic, spiritual, relational, and emotional world, we never position ourselves to really give birth to what God has placed within us. At some point in life, you've got to do this. You've got to decide, I'm going to work on the environment around me so that what is within me can find a way to express itself appropriately. Jesus even did that. Je Jesus, Jesus shows us the principle, and the principle is simple. What? He goes in to heal a person, but he can't heal the child until he sends her loving, I'm sure, but clearly unbelieving family out of the room. He's it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that they were an unbelieving family.
Unbelievable. Hang on a second here. I've got to hunt this down in my Bible. In fact, if I look up Talitha, hang on a second here. Um, Let me see if this is the one. Mark 5. Hold on. Yep, here it is. It's Mark chapter 5. Uh, the uh, the story is at the tail end of Mark chapter 5. Let me put it into context. Um, uh, verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking. Now, the, this is uh, uh, the uh, synagogue ruler whose daughter was, uh, was ill and near death, and Jesus is on his way to heal her, and the, the woman comes up and touches Jesus's the hem of his uh, clothing and is healed, and Jesus stops and says, "Who touched me?" Yet that that's the incident. So um, you know, and he eventually finds the woman, and he says to her, "Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease." Verse thirty-five. So while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, "Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther?" But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue. Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but she's only sleeping. They laughed at him, but Jesus put them all outside and listened. It says, Jesus put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, will rise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. But in the text itself, it clearly says that Jesus put all put everybody out, and then he took the parents and his disciples who were with him up to the uh, girl's room, and there he raised her from the dead. Plain and simple. The parents were there. But you'll notice here that this imposter, this uh, this man who is basically pretending to be a Christian pastor, because that's what this is. This is all pretense. Listen again to his retelling of this story to prove his theology. Not the theology taught in the Bible, but his dreaming theology. Here we go what God has placed within us. At some point in life, you've got to do this. You've got to decide, I'm going to work on the environment around me so that what is within me can find a way to express itself appropriately. Jesus even did that. Jesus Jesus shows us the principle, and the principle is simply this. Environment is everything. There's one occasion in the Gospels, he goes in to heal a person, but he can't heal the child until he sends her loving, I'm sure, but clearly unbelieving family out of the room. He sends the family out. Why? Because in their unbelief, they were limiting what he intended. He had to change the environment in order to work a miracle. Nowhere does it say that Jesus had to get them out in order to work the miracle. 
He just made that up and then stuck it in there. And on top of it, the text clearly says that the parents went with him up to where the daughter was. The Bible says that Jesus could do no mighty miracles in his hometown, Nazareth. Why? Well, we think it's because they just had an environment of, of the status quo, just normal. He's just Joe. He's just the carpenter. They didn't create an environment for God to do great things in. So he did a few small miracles, but the Bible said he could do no mighty miracles. Environment is everything. Some of you may have to go back and lovingly say, I'm changing it now. I'm going to be a positive person here. We're going to get healthy. We're going to become a family who honors God. I'm not going to do it by shoving, by command control, but I'm going to trust God's Spirit gently and deeply working within us to create a healthy and a holy environment so we can thrive as a kingdom family. Number three, you've got to define the beneficiaries of the dream. See, the dream's got to be about something bigger than you. It's got to be about something greater than you, or it will be absent the working power of God. Nothing wrong with having things you'd like to accomplish in life, but your highest dreams, your best dreams, are your God-centered dreams. And if you don't have God-centered dreams, you're going to be tempted to compromise. You're going to be tempted to settle. There's going to be a point in time when you just give up. I watch it happen all the time. Churches do it. When they make church life about themselves, they stop taking risks. They stop growing. They stop innovating. They stop changing. Why? Because it's not about reaching the lost. It's not about reaching people far from God. It's only about their own self-gratification. And they stop kingdom progress. We have to realize that this is not about us. It's true in, in building a business. Build a business. But don't build it for your ego's sake. Build it for something more compelling. Build it to honor God. Build it to be a giver. Build it to employ people who need jobs. Build it to engage in community transformation. Have a beneficiary greater than yourself, and God will honor the dream in order to help others. Who are you building for? Number four, develop an inner image of completion. Develop an inner image of completion. One of my favorite stories in all of, of, of sports lore is the story of John Stephen Akwari. Mexico Olympics, 1968. Marathon has been run. Medals have been awarded. Stands have vacated. And yet there's one runner who's still running. He's dehydrated. He's exhausted. He's in pain. He's blistered, but he won't quit. And the story is, John Stephen Ekwari kept running through the afternoon, running through the evening, and finally, late into the night, he comes limping into the stadium. Almost everyone was gone. But a reporter runs to him and asks him the question, why, why did you keep running? Cute, sappy music. Everyone was gone. Notice this story is not in the Bible either. None of this stuff is in the Bible. But a reporter runs to him and asks him the question, why, why did you keep running? It's over. Been over for hours. You must have known it was over. And his statement, his response was this. My country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish the race. 
So you've got to reach down deep at times and say, God, I'm doing this to honor you. I'm doing this to glorify you. It's the spirit that Paul the apostle had who said, forgetting those things that are behind, I'm pressing. I'm reaching. I won't give up. I won't quit. You can't make me stop. There is a compelling reason for my existence. It's greater than my life, and I won't give up until I finally reach it. Then finally, in closing, number five, you've got to build a relationship with encouragers and equippers. In order to nurture the dream, you need encouragers and you need equippers, and rarely are they the same people. Your encouragers are there, put there by God to do one thing, to tell you you can do it. On the other hand, equippers will probably look at you and say, you know, I don't think you can do it, but if you could do it, here's how you would do it. And we've all got those people in our lives. They don't believe in us. They're just doing their job, teaching in a classroom, standing up in a lecture, running through the orientation because HR told them to. We've all got equippers in our lives who don't believe in us, but they're there to equip us. But on the other hand, we have encouragers. My wife is an encourager. Oh, bless her holy name. I'm so thankful. She looks at me, and she just thinks I can do stuff that I know I can't do. And I'm not going to tell her otherwise. God has kept her blind. I've kept her from the information. And every day, she says, you can do it. You can do it. And I'm thinking, you are mad, but I love you. You can do it, Terry. You can. Everybody needs a mother, a father, a friend, a wife, an encourager who looks at you and doesn't assess you for, for, for your limitations. They just say, you can do it. On the other hand, we need equippers. They say, I don't know if you can, but if you could, here's how you would. We need people who help us in that. Now, here's my last point. Don't take encouragement from equippers. And you probably don't want to take equipment from encouragers. You need both in your life. Find out who they are. Who are your go-to people for encouragement? The Bible doesn't teach any of this. You need both in your life. Find out who they are. Who are your go-to people for encouragement? And who are the people that can teach you what you need to know to fulfill your God-ordained assignment? Amen. Hope you got something out of this teaching time here today. I didn't get Jesus. I didn't get biblical doctrine. I got a bunch of Bible-twisting and me-centered lover of self, self-deception, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Really, do you think Jesus hung naked, bleeding, and scourged on a cross so that you can, have a, you can dream a big dream? If that's what you think he was doing on the cross, have your big dream. Enjoy it now, because that's the only reward you'll get. Dream for us individually. You got a dream for our families. You've got a dream for our community. You're dreaming about the valley. You're dreaming about our generation. You're dreaming about your church. So, Lord, we pray this simple prayer again this weekend. What have you assigned us to? What do you want to tell us? What do you want to teach us? What do you want to show us? that? Yeah, what God assigned you to, to uh, you can find it in Luke chapter 24, tail end of the chapter. Jesus said, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Yeah, he's already given you the assignment. You are conveniently ignoring it. Assigned us to. What do you want to 
tell us? What do you want to teach us? What do you want to show us that we're not presently seeing? Our prayer is that our hearts would be positioned to hear and to see all that you have planned for us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Jesus' name. Yeah, just baptize some narcissistic false doctrine and voila, all of a sudden it's Christian. I, I, I just don't even have the words for what it is that we just heard. I, I, it's, yeah, this is the kind of message that sends people to hell. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul warned us about in the last days. It's here. It's right now. This is what's being preached in the churches in your neighborhood. Your neighbors are attending churches just like this. And this is the doctrine that they're hearing. And they're not hearing about their great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're hearing about a fantasy God, a mythological deity who happens to go by all the same biblical names as the God of the Bible. But the details as to what this God is offering, a big dream, all about you. And unfortunately, that mythological deity doesn't really exist, and this doctrine really isn't biblical doctrine. And that gospel that they're preaching isn't the biblical gospel. It's anathema. It's a heresy. It's an apostasy. And your neighbors are going to hell. Pray for them. Plead with them. Shed tears for them. And go to them and open up the scriptures and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Rebuke them, correct them, and teach them what the Bible really says so that they'll repent and be forgiven for these heresies. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know the deal. You know what the deal is. We can't survive without your help. If you would like to partner with us financially, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. You know the drill. Pick one, fill it out. We truly could use your help. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. That's the biblical gospel. That other stuff that you just heard, yeah, that one. Amen. Amen.